Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Uh, in the studio today, we have Jacob and Zane. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm sure probably people here have heard the weather reports, but apparently there is going to be a bit of a storm coming tonight. Monsoon. Or even today, I'm not sure, but I've heard vaguely that there might be some flooding in kind of like North Coburg. Um, so yeah, just stay safe. Um, apparently school, um, I've heard around that some school might not be running at some schools. I, that's ha- the extent of how serious it is, but that, that was just a random status I read on Facebook, but it's a potential possibility. Um, so I guess the only thing is just to stay safe, everyone, and, um, don't get flooded. Mm. Okay, um, now before we get on with the program, um, I would like to acknowledge um, the one, um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Um, so in terms of the pro- what we have um, lined up in the program, we have quite a lot of news to share. In fact, um, I think from the start, we're going to give a bit of a report back on some of the activist kind of activities I've been involved in, yeah, um, especially be, especially with some of the, um, especially with that big refugee rights demo that happened last Friday and on Sunday. Um, in terms of interviews, we have an interview with Peter Boyle, um, who's uh, a member of the National Executive of Social Science. He just went to a conference in Malaysia, so he's going to, the interview is a pre-recording, he's going to be doing a, a bit of report back on that. Um, and then the second interview will be with Debbie um, Renner from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, talking about, um, we'll be discussing um, the visit of Milo Yiannopoulos and the counter-rally against him. All right, um, so I guess um, in terms of like uh, news, I'd like to just make a bit of a comments on what happened last Friday on at the refugee rights demo because you know it's still pretty relevant and important. There is going to be another refugee rights rally tonight at five thirty, um, called by the Close the Camps um, Collective. Um, but for those who did see the news or were present at the rally. Um, one of the things, and I write this in um, the latest article, uh, in an article that's coming up for Green Left Weekly, um, one of the notable things about these refugee rallies for like the past several weeks, um, they have one thing in common, other than the fact that we're all, they're people gathering uh, in support of refugee rights and against mandatory detention and to coin on the government to end the siege. What they all have in common, especially in Melbourne, is the massive police presence at all these demos. Mm. 
Uh, and in all their ninja turtle suits. Yeah, so like yeah, you have um, the presence of police in you know the full gear, mm. um, uh, and it's clear that um, since the first refugee ra- um, since the first refugee rally since the siege on Manus started, um, which was on Saturday, November the third, um, where we occupied um, the Flinders Street intersection, there's clearly been a deliberate attempt to intimidate or to basically prevent protesters from doing that again. Um, And that can be seen um, at all the refugee rallies that have happened in the past several weeks because there's been one every week because um, Refugee Action Collective basically called for a weekly rally every Friday. Um, We have been prevented from occupying the intersection past Burke Street. We've basically been blocked from even um, marching past Burke Street Uh, and the and the police come in full force with, you know, all the the gear and everything. Um, and there's also been reports in Sydney. This is not the only example of police intimidation happening. In Sydney alone, I've heard reports that notable activists, um, this is all on social media, it's not in the mainstream media, but from notable activists I've, I know on social media, they've reportedly had visits from the police, like mm. police coming over to their house, you know, asking... Uh, their parents or whoever's home at the time, you know, about X person. Um, no charges are clearly being pressed, but it's just one way of how the state can, you know... Intimidate. In- intimidate. Mm. Um, trying to, you know... Because uh, in Australia, we actually have a democratic right to protest. Mm. Um, now, going into the events on Friday... Um, Neil Erickson and two of his mates basically came up to the rally and pushed away the rally share and took the um, microphone and basically, you know, yelling out, you know... Derogatory things. Yeah, derogatory refugees. Refugees. Mm. Um, And then in response, uh, another protester, and I was was here and there's also videos Mm. um, capturing this, um, um, came in self-defence of the rally and pushed... Um, Neil Erickson away. Um, he and tried was, to get that mic back. And tried to get the mic back. And what happened next was chaos escalated. Um, well, well, importantly, uh, when that person, because uh, we were talking about this this morning and I yep. saw that video, when that person has, has pushed Neil Erickson away and tried to grab the mic back, uh, one of his thug mates has then grabbed that person and put yep. them in a headlock. Yeah. So... Uh, in terms of that initial exchange or scuffle or whatever, someone from the refugee action has tried to get the mic back. Yep. And this fascist has put them in a headlock. And then... Yeah, what happens next is... Um, ba- basically, the police then arrest that protester... Who had been in a headlock from Who had a been in a headlock, who yep. came to the self-defense of the rally... And then, as you can see, I watched. I didn't actually see this myself, so I actually had to watch the video that Neil Erickson took of himself to actually mm-hmm. get the clear picture. But basically, what happened was the police um, took the took the um, escorted the neo Nazis or the fascists away, mm. and basically just let them go and escorted them away from the rally. No charges, no arrests. Um, and then, what happened in response afterwards is. Um, because they arrested that protester, a section of the rally then came in self-defence of 
of um of the protester who was arrested, mm. urging the police to let him go. Let him go. Um, so a group of protesters tried to block the police from taking away, and the police's response was to actually send in more police. Um, to the point where it was sort of like. From my impression, from where I was there, there was more police than protesters in that particular space. That was on the street above La Shrobe Street, which is I think near on the Little Lonsdale Street side. Um, so it's near that. Um, there's like a hot chocolate place or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on that yeah. street. So basically, and then what happened next? And this is um, another thing that's quite brutal. Basically, one of the protesters got charged at by a number of police officers and you can sort of see video footage and he got basically kneed in the face uh, and then he had his head, basically his head was smashed open and he was bleeding everywhere on the floors of of um, Melbourne. Mm. Um, the police's response was to not call ambulance. In fact, the ambulance, there was actually an ambulance called, um, but the clearly the police can play the role of not actually saying that ambulance can't go in because of the protesters and there's clear danger involved. That was a kind of argument I think the police were putting. Um, eventually, um, eventually the police then took the man, the activist who was injured severely um, by the police violence. Um, they took him into a, into a van and then escorted him away. Um, for listeners information, that protester who got injured is fine. Um, he got, he did receive medical care eventually. Um, and also the protester who got arrested um, two separate people because on the day some people actually confused those two people as the same person, but they're not actually. The protester who came in self-defence of the rally was actually taken to the police station and um, released later on with no charge um, mm. or arrest. Um, but, of course, if he did receive any charges or arrest, I think the activist community would have come fully behind him and, you know, helped would have helped fund his legal fees. Mm. Um, so and yeah, that's um, the next thing that happened at that rally is um, there, there was kind of a big push um, to march. Um, eventually, the police conceded and we were allowed to march, and we sort of marched past Burke Street and mm. then went. But initially, they were trying to stop you from marching. Yes, and this was the same the week before. Yeah. Yep. This is like an emerging pattern yep. where even though in Melbourne. As probably more so here than in other parts of Australia. If you want to march down the street mm. to make a political point, you can. Yeah. There's not permits and paperwork and stuff. If you've yeah. got a decent crowd, you can march down the street, whereas the cops have chosen this particular juncture and this particular political, um, you know, point of friction mm. to try and start pushing back and revoking yep. that basic right of protest. Yeah, that's and that's exactly what's happening. And um, we did eventually get to march through to Burke Street, or go into to Elizabeth Street, and then eventually make to Flinders. And that's where the rally ended there because basically police formed a whole circle around the intersection of Flinders Street to Swanson Street, um, basically preventing us from occupying it um, like we had done previously at the start of the month. Um Although it was kind of funny because they basically did the job for us because no traffic could go through that Flinders Street intersection anyway because the police were all blocking it. So that's yeah, that was sort of the the weirdness of it. Um, or and on Sunday at the Get Up Action, there was a sort of um, um protesters attempted to march again and they were kind of met with the same level of resistance. In fact, um, there's a photographer who kind of reported um that 
uh, though he took a photo of this and that the police were actually threatening to use pepper spray to sort of push protesters away if they attempted to march through the police lines. Um, and that, in fact, at the on last Friday's rally, pepper spray was also actually used, although I personally didn't see it. Um, but I know activists who um, and their pictures of it um, mm. of protesters being pepper sprayed and at least eight were affected. And like with tasers, this is the creeping um, use of pepper spray. When it first comes out, they're like, oh, yeah, this will just be used in, like, real hardcore violent situations. And then over time it becomes like, no, no, we're going to stop you from marching up the street. And if you try and march up the street, we will spray you with this, like, toxic red gel foam stuff that burns your eyes and throat. So Mm. good work, Victoria Police. Yeah, so I think, yeah. On the march towards fascism. So, yeah, that's why I think ending um, this this whole story, um, that's why I think it will be quite important, despite the rain forecasted, um, I think it will be quite important to come attend the rally this Friday, um, and especially since this police repression is kind of nothing compared to what the refugees on Manus, mm. who are currently, what they're currently experiencing now. And to add to, um, to the story, we kind of mentioned this, I think, on the radio, but on in Sydney, um, in addition to police making visits of, of notable activists, there have also been there were at least two um, notable refugee activists who um, were strip searched by the police um, for their participation in a refugee rights demo. What? Um, of course, they were released without charge, um, but the whole argument or excuse was that they could self harm themselves, which sounds like a pretty Crap excuse to me. Um, yeah, it's garbage. And it's just intimidation again. It's all just intimidation. And, but I think it also says something about the refugee rights campaign. You know, I think the government is getting scared because of the increasingly unpopular, the, the increasing opposition to the government's um, policies of offshore detention and cruelty. Um, the increasing anger that is kind of being felt from protesters because there's been lots of direct actions, um, large marches happening, um, and so the police are being used clearly as you know, as we would say, as you know, radicals used in the service of the state to basically curb any kind of opposition or dissent to the status quo. Mm. Right, I'm going to be playing a pre-recording, uh, pre-recorded interview that I did with Peter Boyle um, yesterday um, about his trip to a to a Malaysian sort of radical left activist conference. We have Peter Boyle, um, who is a member of the National Executive of Socialist Alliance, who just went to a left-wing conference organised by the PSM, um, which is the party of um, the Socialist Party of Malaysia. Um, so, Peter, um, what can you report back on this conference that just happened? Hi, Jacob. Good to be on the program. It was a very interesting conference because um, Malaysia is, um, is, is, is in the process of uh, uh, preparing itself for a general election, which probably happened about March next year. So there's a lot of uh, discussion about uh, you know, what's going to happen. In the previous uh, general election... Um, the uh, opposition actually managed to win a majority of, of the popular vote, 53%, but because of gerrymanders, only got 40%. And, uh, you know, this is in the context of a fairly big democracy movement that has been 
running since 2007. However, the sad part of, of the visit was to find out that the opposition is in not a very good state in Malaysia today. It's highly divided, and uh, there has been a, a return to the very racialized politics which was a uh, you know probably the most unpleasant one of the most unpleasant legacies of British colonial rule in the country and and both uh, mainstream opposition parties as well as the government have been basically playing playing the race card so to speak and that was one of the focuses of uh, the conference that I attended in Kuala Lumpur uh, recently that the PSM hosted. Um, so what can you tell us um, about the conference? Like what kind of sessions did they have or political topics that were like frequent um, topics of discussion amongst activists in Malaysia? So the, the headline panel the headline panel was precisely on this. How do we, how do we end this race-based politics in Malaysia? And that was, uh, you know, that was a hot local topic. And uh, the, uh, the, 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 the points of tension there were actually between uh, some activists from 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 um, from other other sections of the opposition who were kind of retreating to uh, you know trying to defend uh, the the rights of one group or the other for instance there was a person there who was uh, not very happy uh, with uh, with you know they wanted the, the PSM to take a stronger position to to remove a section of the constitution which included um, the the, uh, the necessity for having positive discrimination to to address the uneven um, the uneven distribution of wealth between the different racial groups in in Malaysia. Now this this is this 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 is quite a hot topic. The attitude of the PSM is no, we shouldn't remove this because there's huge inequality in the country, uh, but we have to try and amend it. In the direction of being more class-based and race-based, because that will disarm the uh, the politics of of, of racialization. So th- th- this this is a sort of a tactical debate that was going on there. Um, other topics which were you know I suppose relevant to socialists all around the world. There was the session which uh, I participated in, which was about the significance of the Russian Revolution. Uh, there was another interesting section on. Could there be a new Bandung conference? Now, Bandung conference was something that was held in Indonesia during the time of Sukarno, which which is a big conference of Asian and African nations that led to the setting up of the non-aligned movement. So this was an interesting topic, and there was a speaker from Indonesia, a very well-informed historian who spoke on the topic, as well as somebody from the Philippines. And the idea, I gather here, was to explore whether there was room for some sort of um, putting forth some sort of Alba-type program for Southeast Asia. This is in the context of a recent ASEAN meeting, APEC meeting, which, which, which Trump attended, which are all heading in, you know, more steadily in, uh, to a greater and greater extent in the direction of, of entrenching neoliberal, uh, neoliberal-type relations in, in the region. So they wanted to put forward the counterposts um, you know, a progressive alternative. And the, the final session, which I thought definitely was relevant to hear, was uh, a, a youth session, uh, a panel of, of, of young people who were speaking on the question of um, uh, social media and activism. So, you know, clicktivism or, or in the streets. So 
to, to put the, the contrast. And that was quite rich discussion because Malaysia is actually a relatively developed civil country. And, and so, you know, uh, youth culture actually has a lot in common with well, global youth culture, actually, that, that I saw. Yeah. Um, so I guess our next question I want to ask is, you know, as an experience, um, you know, as an Australian going to this conference, what kind of key similarities did you pick out between, you know, the, str- the, you know, the struggle for a better world that's, you know, being felt in, you know, that's in building up in Malaysia um, and kind of what kind of other similarities and differences you found with the left in Malaysia based on your experience of the conference um, and com- compared to Australia? Well, the last thing I mentioned, you know, that was the case in point because one of the big, one of the big uh, um, challenges, and I, I don't think it's just for the left movement or the socialist movement, but you could say for the the labour movement, the broader labour movement, is, um, you know, how successful would it be in, uh, in in drawing in a new new generations of activists, youth activists, you know, because there is the prevailing culture, I think. You know, now globally, um, certainly in the more industrialized part of the world, is um, you know, sort of a, a sort of a, a quite a highly manipulated uh, popular culture, which takes an, um, takes advantage on one hand of of you know real, uh, I guess real openings associated with the development of new social media, but on the other hand, you know, very strongly pushing, you know, uh, very individualistic, very atomized type activity, very um, branded type identities, you know. So all these issues, I think, actually quite, to me, was quite an interesting part of, uh, of, of this discussion. The participation of, of, of younger people was quite high. One of the phenomena which I found out about, which I think was interesting, I don't know whether it really has, it's been done in, in Australia very much or at all, is that there are groups of young people who are discussing uh, radical issues, including Marxism, including also seeing feminism. recent one was uh, domestic violence, who are actually having these regular meetings in public places uh, like uh, coffee shops and stuff like that, but actually even in fast food joints like Burger Kings, you know. So maybe like 20, 20 people might gather together around a few tables uh, you know, and they, they, they live stream it. And, and I've, I've been checking the audiences they're getting for these discussions. And they go to, you know, uh, over a thousand people outside there watching these discussions. And that's sort of like really taken off. In fact, um, the PSM has is, is, is started to experiment with it, I think. And, uh, but uh, there is one organization, one youth organization, which uh, has, has made this. The, the center of its activity. So basically it supplements, you know, advertises as regular space in a Burger King restaurant, a topic coming up, and they have this, this live stream discussion. So that's quite interesting, I think. I mean, you know, of course, you've got to put this in the context of, you know, a bigger challenge out there. You know, there are people to be organized, extremely repressed people to be organized. You know, um, there are people who are, uh, you know, this entire large section of, of, of the workforce in Malaysia is actually um, um, refugees or, or migrant workers who are often super exploited. They have to be organized. There are lots of people who are being driven out of their villages because the title they assume they had for many years, you know, is, is uncertain. 
developer wants to come in and just kick them out. And, and, and these are very real live struggles on the ground. And I mean, I guess you can't, you can't do it through Facebook. You know, you have to be out there organizing on the ground, organizing the community to fight back. I guess um, my next question, because you gave a good, a bit of a, a sample of that, what were the type of kind of grassroots kind of movements that were profiled at this um, particular conference? Um, well, the, 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 it's a whole range, but uh, I mean, certainly the, this question of communities being displaced is a big part of it. Uh, another movement that was highlighted is that of, uh, in, of the in, indigenous groups in the country who... Um, you know, are facing uh, also loss of land, largely due to uh, illegal logging operations. So that, that and these are people who live in very uh, remote areas of the country, and the PSM is quite heavily involved in campaigning for this. In fact, in the in the coming uh, general election, uh, a, a leading member of the indigenous community is going to be one of their candidates. So that's another issue that's coming uh, came into the discussion. Um, another issue which is sort of like going from a low base is actually um, a discussion about climate change. Now, while there has been an environment movement, uh, for a long time it's targeted things like logging, the building of big dams, you know, that's, that has been its focus. But a whole series of uh, extreme weather events recently around Malaysia, which largely which caused very, very big floods, floods that they hadn't seen before, uh, landslides, you know, uh, deaths uh, of, of people caught up in them, um, has highlighted the question of, of, of climate change. And, um, you know, after the conference, I went on to the state of Penang, where there had been such a, a, a large flood and participated in a broad community discussion about, you know, how to fight back on, on climate change. And I think, you know, that's another similarity. It's a challenge that, you know, is felt by climate change activists all around the world. It's such a big problem that you start fighting, you know. So, and inevitably, we, the campaigns start in a defensive mode, you know, to stop this particular overdevelopment or road development here or, you know, something else like that. But it's actually quite hard to cohere a, a, a sort of a movement around the overall problem of, of, of climate change. Um, some of the frustrations I heard there were from people who, you know, had been environmentalists for a long time. And, uh, you know, that, that, their frustration was with the, the political process and with the mainstream political opposition. Because they found that even in uh, 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 some of the states, state governments, which are controlled by the federal opposition in Malaysia, uh, the record on, on dealing with the environment is really bad. In one state, you know, uh, you know, the, there is rampant. In the state of Kelantan, there's rampant uh, government, uh, you know, illegal deals with illegal loggers. So that, that that really upsets people. In a very developed, in very developed states like Selangor and Penang, uh, the opposition-controlled government is is very cozy with uh, with developers and construction companies. And they've allowed runaway development, development without proper regulation that has led to things like the clearing of steep uh, um, forested hillsides, um, the, uh, the, 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 the building of uh, roads uh, and land reclamation with not 
with no thought to the environmental consequences, um, etc. And 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 the the few voices I heard, including including at least one uh, member of parliament who was in an opposition party, uh, was that you know that when they tried to raise these issues of uh, these environmental concerns, they were quickly sidelined, locked out of committees, you know, and they just felt completely impotent. So I think this is adding to the sort of the, the thing I began with is that you know after years and years of a rising democracy movement and huge hopes that um, that could finally be an experience of a change of federal government because basically the people that the the, the former British colonial uh, colonialists put in as government have never ever been out of government federally in Malaysia and and they've resisted being pushed out, you know, by fair and foul means. And so there was a lot of hope in the opposition, but now people are beginning, many people, many activists certainly, are beginning to to see that, that most of the opposition parties are, you know, it's more the same. They're very neoliberal in their framework, very tied to big business. Yeah. Okay, I guess um, my last question will be, um, what was um, what was kind of like the concluding kind of session of the conference? What were kind of the themes that they were sort of that um, the speakers were kind of putting forward? Like the kind of message that the conference ended in terms of like building the fight back for the left and building the left in general. Well, the the, the, the this particular conference, the concluding session, was the panel on the Russian Revolution that was on. Um, I think it was good because it was sort of provided. Um, it wasn't like we were talking just about history. We were talking about where's the world going, you know, and um, and um, you know what are the prospects for change. And I think one of the, and, the, and the discussion was quite quite rich. Um, uh, one of the points that came up uh, was the fact that you know it, it's it's not like we're discussing like something we'd like to do. You know, oh yes, you know, we want system change, we want revolution. You know, this is something we like to do or we have to do because of the great moral reasons. But rather that, you know, we we all live at a time where 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 revolutionary situations are emerging, though often in the most inconvenient places. So some of the questions have been raised, you know, the the, the very idea the, the very idea of a of the Russian Revolution breaking out in the most uh, backward of the of the imperial countries in, in nineteen seventeen. Well, that was one of those, if you like, inconvenient revolutions. And you might say today, we reflected in our discussion, uh, right in the middle of the most horrendous, dragged-out war in the Middle East, in the middle of the Syrian civil war, you know, this is the example of the, uh, in northern, the northern Syria, uh, where the Kurdish-led um, uh, forces, SDF forces, you know, have been managed to carve out sort of a little revolutionary experiment. So... You know, we, were, we, we reflected on, on that on one hand. On the other hand, there was another big discussion about what you could call the long shadow of the Russian Revolution, or rather its degeneration and final defeat, you know. And so the whole question of the socialist movement having to, to take up, you know, in a, in a, in a convincing and, uh, what do you call it, a radical way, the banner of democracy. So we have to, you know, so the discussion was that, you know, we have to, because we have to win back the masses on this question, because there is an association, whether you like it or not, between, you know, from Russian Revolution on, uh, socialism, dictatorship, you know, loss of democracy. 
and uh, so a new socialist movement has to has to you know really be seen as a true champion of democracy. And there was some suggestion that you know this needs to be reflected uh, not just in the policies that we put forward, in the struggles that we we participate in, which are you know to build. To, to strengthen the people's voice and strengthen the people's uh, uh, participation in decision making, but also in the internal culture of the socialist movement, um, it has to be you know it has to be internally democratic as well. Right. So that's well, what we ended the discussion on. All right, that sounds um, all really good. Um, thank you very much, um, Peter Boyle, for being available for this interview and. Um all right, that was um, just an interview um, with Peter Boyle, um, member of the National Executive of Social Alliance, um, talking about his recent sort of trip to Malaysia and um, going to this kind of broad left conference that they had organised, um, that the um, Socialist Party of Malaysia had organised. All right, um, so I guess it's time, it's 7.35am on the dial, and I guess I want to talk about... Um, bring up some news from um, the latest um, issue of Green Left Weekly. Um, but basically, I'm going, I might talk a bit about the, what's happening in the United States. Um, basically, there's cause, some listeners might be aware, but there's this whole net neutrality debate happening in the United States right now, um, where corporations are basically attempting to, you know, um, regulate the internet and put it into the hands of cor- um, corporations. Um, so, open uh, in this article, Jake Johnson writes: um, "Open internet ad- advocates warned that we are running out of time to save the web from cor- corporate control and basically putting out this call to action." Um, the call to action came after United um, States Federal Commission's chairperson unveiled revealed his long-awaited plan to scrap net neutrality on November the 21st. You know, critics have slammed the plan as naked corporatism, designed to give a major gift to the telecommunications industry at the expense of the public. Um, and as he writes here, you know, the, the reckless wrecking ball strikes again. Former FCC commissioner and current special advisor at Common Cause, Michael Corp, said. And, of course, you know, this whole plan is basically to get a... Um, is, you know, basically, you know, just serving the interests of, you know, corporations. They want, they basically want to, they hate the fact that the internet is, you know, not something that people, corporations can necessarily have much control of. Um, and of course, um, and there's going to be clearly some opposition to this. And I think there's some similarities that can be made um, to here in the Australian situation. Like in Australia, we have this situation where, um, the telecommunications industry is dominated by two monopolies, um, one of the um, Telstra and Optus. Um, and I think really the, 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 I mean, the one kind of things to fix that would be to actually nationalise the internet industry and put, the, put companies like um, Telstra and, uh, and so on in public hands. Um, now, the next article I kind of want to talk about, this is... Um, just got recently posted on Green Left, the Green Left Weekly website, um, but this is written by Jim McElroy, commenting on the whole um, Royal Commission into the banking and financial sectors, which was announced on November the 13th. Um, he argues that this could be the beginning of the end for the coalition government, and of course, this last-ditch retreat is designed to head off a revolt by several Maverick um, Nationals for a commission of inquiry into the banks, which um, would have exposed deep rifts within the coalition parties. 
And of course, um, he writes here, a commission of inquiry would have been out of the direct control of the government and would report to Parliament instead of Cabinet. This would have been even more dangerous for the big four banks and the government that has covered them up for them for the past over the past several years. Um, and then he looks back here, writes in, you know, in June 2014, a Senate inquiry into the Commonwealth Bank um, handed down its report. The Commonwealth Bank, you know, was found to have been involved in a fraud scandal that left thousands of co- customers millions of dollars out of pocket. The Greens responded to the report immediately, welcoming it and calling for a royal commission into the banks. Um, and commenting on to this government's um, decision about you know doing a, a royal commission on the banks, Greens leader Richard Di Natale said, you know, after years of dodging inquiries and being protected by the Liberal and Labor parties, the big banks are now going to have to answer for their behaviour. We will be monitoring the process closer, closely to ensure the terms of references are robust and lead to genuine outcomes that deliver justice for victims and lead to systematic cultural reforms. Um, then he writes here that, you know, because one of the thing, one of the reasons why this Royal Commission the banks is kind of overdue is kind of Labor will kind of preventing it from happening. Um, so Labor initially opposed the Royal Commission, um, but because of all these scandals that kept coming, it could really no longer avoid the issue. And, of course, in April last year, it announced it would support a Royal Commission into misconduct into the banking industry. Um and then Labor leader Bill Shorten responded that, you know, the timing of this announcement was, you know, one of Mr. Turnbull's greatest um, greatest failures of leadership. And, of course, echoing concern that the Prime Minister said the Royal Commission was regrettable. Shorten said Turnbull and his government voted in Parliament more than 20 times to protect the banks um, from a Royal Commission. Um, conveniently for the government, the big four banks sent a letter on November the 30th to the Treasurer, signed by the chairpersons and chief executives of you know all the major banks, ANZ, Commonwealth, and Eniabend, arguing though even though the sector had long campaigned against it, such a measure was now in the national interest. And of course, our banks have they write here our banks have consistently argued the view that further inquiries into the sector, including a royal commission, are unwarranted. Uh, however, it is now in national interest for the political uncertainty to end. Um, and, of course, within hours, Turnbull had called the Royal Commission. He had spent a year and a half opposing. Government policy remains the same until it is changed, he explained. And he argues that, you know, it was an regrettable, um, you know, a regrettable but necessary action. And now a Royal Commission was the only way to restore public faith in the, the, um, the bank sec- banking sector. Um, then he, uh, in this article, it's also written that you know bank employee workers support these calls for the Royal Commission to the banks, um, but you know I think it's interesting to note that Peter Dutton, um, in light of probably he, the fact that his party has opposed this Royal Commission um, to the banks for you know for the past several years, is you know sort of smugly saying, oh, it's. This could be potentially a good thing because, you know, it means we can go look at the unions and their use of super funds, um, which is sort of really just sort of says quite a lot. Um, and, you know, or there's always, you're, um, I think saying you're reading something in the Australian recently about this um, merger between the MUA and CFMU. Yeah, just something that was talking about how um, some of the 
business elite, shall we say, like the head of the Mines and Minerals Association, was all grumpy about this merger of the CFMEU, the MUA, and the Textile Clothing Footwear Union, and saying that, oh, these are lawless unions and they're going to band together and commit even more industrial sabotage from pit to port. Um, so, yeah, pretty much this idea that we we need unions that are compliant and obey the law, not unions that do naughty things like take industrial action, go on strike. Um, and, of course, the uh, the Mines and Minerals Association, some of those companies that, that are among their membership, they're... Uh, upstanding corporate citizens, aren't they? We know that they always obey the law and pay all their taxes, mm. not. And um, so, yeah, concluding this article that I was just reading for, you know, um, Socialist Alliance co-commissioner Susan Price, you know, states that a Royal Commission into the big banks will not, you know, will not be ranked socialism, which is what one of the Liberal... Party yeah, MPs. John Howard said Yeah, that. John Howard basically. Yeah, John Howard basically said that we can't do a... A royal commission to the bank because that would basically be socialism. Um, but you know, it does, as Susan writes here, it, 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 but it does give a op, the opportunity for a genuine, um, genuine expose on the crimes, misdeeds, and greed of the Australia's big four. Um, and one of the first steps we need to do is to put maximum pressure on the government to not like appoint this a puppet, but a genuinely independent person as commissioner, and also insist that terms of reference be broad enough to. P- permit a real investigation into the systematic rip-offs of the private banks. Mm. And that's really the challenge, and I think that the Peter Dutton's comments are informative because by the Liberals calling the Royal Commission themselves, rather than wait to get rolled by this dissident group of nationals uh, combining with the Greens and the Labor Party, um, by the Liberal Party calling the Royal Commission maintaining control, that means they get to set the terms of reference Mm. and do things like what Peter Dutton is um, um, talking about Mm. and not just make it a thing about the banks but also make it a uh, something that looks at super funds and potentially they could instruct the Royal Commission to basically come up with a conclusion that says unions have too much control and we need to let private banks like take over industry super funds. So that's the real risk. And in the lead-up to Christmas, is there going to be enough people power to really you know, push this? And if Turnbull appoints some stooge um, person to be conducting this Royal Commission, is there going to be a enough people power to say that's not cool we want a genuinely independent thing i don't know Mm. okay i'm just gonna play a quick announcement and then we'll go into our second interview for the program all right um we have um debbie brennan on the line i hope i pronounced her last name correctly she is with campaign against um racism and fashion also known as calf um and we're going to be talking today in the studio about the tour of milo yunopolis um, and um, the counter-protests um, that Sankley Calf is organising against him coming up this Monday. Um, so good morning, Debbie. Good morning. All right, so maybe to start off, what, what can you t- give us the kind of low rundown on what Milo Yiannopoulos is and ha- why he's dangerous and the important, mm. why we need a counter-protest against him? 
Sure. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos is part of the alt-right or the, you know, the hard-right movement um, in the United States. And he his ideology is that of people only need to, you know, um, think of Trump, for example. He's very close to Trump, as a matter of fact. He's a product of that notorious Breitbart News, which is the alt-right um, website platform. Um, he's bankrolled by um, a hedge fund billionaire. So he's the celebrity voice of the 1%, basically. And so his ideas are extremely dangerous. He also has Nazi connections. And so when you hear him make his, you know, outrageous statements, um, and these are statements that are there specifically to scapegoat um, women and feminists, people of color, Muslims, um, LGBTIQ, etc. So it's a very familiar scape- scapegoating narrative that he's got. So... He is um, doing an Australian tour. He does tours. He goes around the United States, around Europe. He's coming to Australia. He's here already to do a tour. And the purpose of his tour is to, um, you know, spread out that ideology. But even worse than that, it's to galvanize the ideology that has already taken root here so that um, the climate that we've got um, here through um, fanned by the likes of our own far right, the Pauline Hanson, the Corey Bernardi types, and um, the various little fascist groups that have become active. Um, he is there to galvanize that um, so that that is what makes him extremely dangerous. And that is why we're protesting and we need to protest because this is really a battle of ideas. Yeah. Zane has a question. Hi, how's it going, Debbie? Hi. Um, hi. Um, I was just wondering if you could comment a bit further about this uh, scapegoating narrative. And uh, so when, when Milo has given talks in the US, mm. um, there's been reports that he would kind of specifically like name and show photos of, of local left activists or LGBTI mm. activists or whatever. Are, are you able to talk a bit more about that, that tactic mm. that seems to be a hallmark of his talks? Um, yeah, look, that's, that's a good point because um, he, he does do that. He identifies um, activists and effectively turns him in to the authorities. Um, and you, you, you can't get more dangerous than that. Um, so I think that that pretty much highlights um, what his role is. So basically his role is kind of twofold but connected. Um, he, he rails against, he loves railing against um, feminists, LGBTIQ, especially trans people, um, against Muslims and so on. We've seen some of his his um, his disgusting insults that he's already hurled since he's been here. But he not only does that, he actually goes on the attack 
against those who are organizing against him. Mm. And so the leftists that he is turning in um, are the ones who are, you know, in the forefront of the organizing against him. So I think it says it all. Mm. Okay, I guess you want to, um, you know, because I've actually been following um, the counter-protests and the the movement against Milo Yiannopoulos for a while, and this mm. these arguments are actually getting put forward in Australia. But basically, I want I want to hear kind of like your response um, um, to this argument that you know there's a lot of people trying to put out this argument, and they've done this in the United States for quite a long time. Um, you know, we shouldn't counter protest mm. against um, Milo Yiannopoulos because we're just giving him the attention that he wants. And I think. Of we clearly think that's a fallacious argument, but I want to hear, you know, why your reasoning on why that's a very problematic argument to make. <laughs> yes, well, um, okay, based on what we've just discussed, and so knowing how dangerous he actually is and his ideology that he's peddling, um, if we put that together with the fact that he already has a huge platform, he has the mainstream media. He has Breitbart News. He's got his speaking gigs. And so he's got a massive platform that is well bankrolled by um, people with money and the powers that be. We only have to look at um, his tour here. He is being lionized and fated by um, the right-wing mainstream media. Look at the Australian. They've practically given over the paper to him. We've got Neil Mitchell. We've got Newscom and the rest of that right-wing media. So he's got, he's got that platform and um, he's got that globally. So where do we stand? We don't have that kind of backing. That When I say we, I am talking about those of us who are his scapegoats, the ordinary people, the, the, the population that he is, is targeting and blaming for, um, you know, the economy going belly up, basically. Hmm. So what do we have? We have our power to organize and protest. And so it's really through the streets. It's through important community media, such as 3CR, that we have to exercise our free speech and our voice. We have to put that uh, counter-narrative, so to speak, and we have to do more than that. We've got to drown him out. So that argument that you say is out there, and it certainly is out there, um, that we should ignore him, we shouldn't give him oxygen, we should let him you know, respect his free speech. I think that that kind of argument comes from a lot of it comes from not really understanding the danger of this guy and, and, and those like him. And um, it is not a, you know, a hyperbole to be um, reminding ourselves of history, because if we look back 80 years ago, when, you know, the, the Nazis, when they were still you know, like the neo-Nazis today, fragmented and weak, and they were or, uh, ignored and not organized against. So we see what happens. So we're facing, hmm. we're facing the danger, and I can't overestimate that or, or overstate it, the danger of a, a fascist movement forming. And that's why 
our free speech and our organizing, that is the communities who are being scapegoated, scapegoated and those on the left who are, you know, um, organizing and mobilizing, that's why we have to be out there and we have to stop them. Hmm. Okay, I guess um, one of the things that, yeah, responding to that, just a bit of a comment, you know, um, Milo Yiannopoulos, um, what I've noticed is that he's pretty much getting a free pass in all the mainstream media outlets, like mm. he's getting interviews, he's even been invited to Parliament by a mm. right-winner, um, and also, you know, it's quite insulting, I think, like I was just hanging around the streets in Flemington, um, which is a very, you know, multicultural yes. suburb, to see like a big massive poster advertising Milo Yiannopoulos' tour is just a big insult. Um, I guess I just wanted to end kind of the last kind of question where is to tell, give us kind of the details about the counter-protest. And I've also heard that there's going to be something else organised by Carf in addition to that on the same night. Um, and whether you can um, just tell us a bit more. And I know, we, I think I, we know at this point that the venue still hasn't been announced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes. Okay, what we do know is that he is, um, he's got two performances, and that's what they are, is performances. And one is at 8 p.m., the other is 10, 15 p.m. And as you say, we, we don't know the venue yet for, you know, he's clearly keeping it under wraps um, because of the power of protest, by the way. And um, so we will likely not know that until... Um, it's divulged on Sunday. So um, the protest that CARF is organizing starts at 7. And so um, we just be ready to be protesting from 7 till, you know, possibly 10.30-ish. Um, and once we do know the venue, we're obviously going to get the word out. Um, so that's the protest. The other event that CARF is holding, it's, it's a press conference. And it's a press conference that's um, at 5.30 at Trades Hall. Hey. Well, thank you um, very much for that, um, Debbie, and um, thank you very much for being on Free CR. I'll, prob- we'll, I'll probably see you at the Milo Yiannopoulos protest because I'm planning to be there. Wonderful. That, that's wonderful. And thank you very much. We'll see all of you and the listeners there on Monday night. Yeah. Cheers, comrade. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, Debbie Brennan there from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, or CAF. And if you want to check out CAF, uh, stay tuned for events, get details about the uh, Milo counter-protests. Just uh, Google it, Campaign ARF, or Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Yeah, you can so you can like their page um, uh, by searching Campaign Against Racism and Fascism to get the upcoming details when we finally find out the venue for Milo in office, which is interesting because it's um, apparently we're supposed to have known about the venue like a week before, um, but it's been a week and it's creeping up to Monday and we still don't know the venue. So maybe the worst thing, maybe what will happen is that it will get, maybe they haven't been able to find a venue. Uh, let's hope that's the case because no one wants to accept no one wants to let Milo Yiannopoulos speak at their venue and taint it forever. But mm. I don't know. I, I, I think that's unlikely. I think because Milo Yiannopoulos, I think, has more than enough money to book out any venue. Um, that they, okay, I think it's more the threat of counter-protesters, why they're being so, um, you know, so quiet about it because they don't want to have... Um, it'll be one way of, you know, breaking up the organisation, like basically 
it'll, it'll be easier to mobilize people um, under fi- in a fixed location than having a location revealed at kind of like the last minute. Mm. Okay, so I'll just play a quick um, one-minute announcement, um, and then we will go to the activist calendar. Word. news dear listener it's that time of year we once again are selling two delicious wines generously donated by local winemaking star and 3cr supporter luke lambert at 17.50 these wines are a super bargain labeled especially for us and they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3cr at those summer festivities Give us a call on 94198377 to order or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. All right, um, so you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is 8am um, on the 855am dial. Um, no, So now it's time for the activist calendar. Um, so on 5pm on... Uh, there'll be uh, West Papua Global Flag Raising Day. Um, it, w- it was originally announced as being on the Parliament steps, but now it's going to be at the State Library, and there's plans to join up with the next announcement, which is the Refugee Rights Rally called by the Close the Camps Collective at 5.30 at the State Library. Um, this Saturday, there'll be a Resistance Bookshop end-of-year bookshelf, um, 25% off all stock, books, pamphlets and merchandise, new sale and second-hand stock. Um, they'll be happening on Saturday, 10am to 6pm um, at the Resistance Centre, Liberal 5407 Swanson Street, and it'll also be happening from one day to Wednesday, 12 to 6pm. Um, this Sunday, um, there'll be um, a comedy night, Political Asylum, at the Brunswick Green, um, 313 Sydney Road. Um, next Tuesday, there'll be a public meeting, Can We prevent um, Bring Them Here and Prevent Deaths at Sea, happening at 7pm at the New International Bookshop. Um, on Friday, the 8th of December, there will be um, a, 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 a forum, Pentridge Voices from the Other Side, Pentridge was um, once Victoria's largest prison complex and housed some of the state's worst criminals, including Ned Kelly and Mark Chopper Reed. Um, join Arthur Robert Rupert Main and former inmates and staff as they tell the shrew and brutal story of Pentridge. Um, this will be happening at 7pm at the Coburg Library, corner of Victoria and Louisa Streets in Coburg. Um, just to make a quick announcement, um, there, I probably originally announced that Norman Finkelstein will be speaking this next this next Friday, but unfortunately his tour has been cancelled um, and he won't be coming to Australia, unfortunately. Um, but also happening on that Friday night, the 8th of December, there will be uh, a fundraiser for Asylum Seekers Resources Centre and they'll be happening at the Gasometer Hotel um, and... I think it's um, it's titled Boundless Planes to Share. Words, and that's next Friday night. Yep, next Friday night. December 8th. Sweet. Yep. Um, on Saturday, the 9th of December, there'll be a film screening, um, Sammy Blood, um, a film about indi- uh, Indigenous children um, being rem- systematically removed from their parents in Sweden. Um, that's going to be happening at 4 p- 4.30pm at the Acme Centre. 
Um, so you can probably look at the Acme website um, to find out how you can make bookings. Um, there'll be a Sunday, December the 10th, um, rally and offshore processing, um, except Rohingya refugees, um, happening at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, and also... Uh, I think there, there's some another stuff happening. Oh, I think on Monday, I think the 11th of December, yep, 11th of De- um, December, there'll be an Overland and NUW kind of organised event um, happening at the Strays Fort at 5.30. Um, some other events happening is there will be a... On the last Parliament sitting day, there'll be a Fend and Extend public housing um, rally happening at the Parliament House, and I think that's on, I think the Wednesday, I think they'll be on the the 13th of December. Okay, so I think we've kind of... Can I just give a plug to you? Yep. I went and uh, saw a drag show, um, some excellent cabaret at the... um, What's it called? It's like the Spiegel Tent Collingwood or something. Uh, it's just down near the Tote Hotel. Um, so it's this cabaret uh, group called Yummy. And so it was an end-of-year fundraiser. They're planning to do tours and stuff next year. I cannot recommend this highly enough. I was extremely impressed with this uh, insight into queer culture in Melbourne. This is a really polished show. Amazing dancers. Um, hilarious kind of audience participation, getting people up on stage to do silly things, singing, hula hoops, um, trapeze, like just an excellent show all around. So keep an eye out for the cabaret show Yummy. I think they might have something on that Midsummer Festival in, I don't know when that, is that in January, February? Coming up soon. It's summer. January the 20th. Okay, cool. So yeah, yeah, keep an eye out for Yummy. Really, really highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, now, speaking of um, Midsummer Festival, um, you know, kind of tangentially related topic, um, I want to start off a bit of discussion about the whole recent Senate discussion um, to pass marriage equality. Mm. Um, basically, we kind of, just to give a bit of analysis, it's sort of a, a bit of an interesting situation. Um, basically, this Dean Smith bill um, got passed with no... Basically, none of none of the kind of amendments that we thought were going to be put to it by the Conservative right all got voted down. Um, so essentially, marriage equality has passed in the Senate, and now it has to go through the lower house. Um, but I guess the problem is, um, you know, despite the the balance of forces that were involved, um, the ALP basically pledged to vote against any form of amendments, including the ones put forward by the Greens. In fact, the ones put um, forward by the Greens is um, were intended to remove all the discriminatory things that were included in the Dean Smith bill to be, um, to begin with, and so it's almost like we sort of have we've made one step forward, one step back. Um, the Dean Smith bill has passed, but it still includes discriminatory things that um, I mean they're not as bad as some of the other things that the Conservative right were pushing, but it's still you know problematic in this kind of day and age that you know we have a mass movement that, you know, is, has been fighting for marriage equality in the years, but we still, in some ways, and this kind of shows how useless the parliament is, we still, despite the will of the masses, we still have to concede in some way to the interests 
of you know rich white bigots to have the right to discriminate against LGBT people. Like they just can't just let it. They can't. They couldn't just simply vote for a bill that um, changes the definition of marriage, um, mm. um, changes the definition of the Marriage Act, because um, that's really all that was needed. We didn't have to have all these. It would be too clear of a people power victory. Yeah. Um, and I think it also it just it says it um it just says a lot about you know the state of politics right now that we can't even get something as simple as marriage equality without um without some cave seats. Um, but anyway, next week it could e we could have marriage equality by next week. Um, um, but the only concern is Malcolm Turnbull, despite the fact that he said he would be voting, he wouldn't support any kind of religious amendments um so called that support religious freedom which is basically just a cynical word to use um a cynical a word that the right like to use to basically say we want to be bigots basically mm. um because you find that even the 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 secular liberal mps love to use the term religious freedom um, they're not religious at all, but they it's, love... It's funny. There was an excellent cartoon by uh, David Pope, who's a uh, cartoonist for the Canberra Times. He's he's bloody brilliant, and he did this great cartoon, and it has a Muslim woman walking down the street, and she's got her headdress on, and then there's some right-wing person with one of those kind of the end of the world is coming big signs hanging off their belly, and it says, Integrate into Australian mainstream values. Uh, and then the next shot, it's got someone walking past with a rainbow flag on their shirt, and it says, protect religious freedom. And it's just kind of pointing out this totally schizophrenic, you know, um, just complete um, contradiction of conservatives, where on the one hand, they want to bully Muslims and say, you're not allowed to wear your headdress, you're not allowed to practice your religion, you need to integrate into supposedly mainstream Australian value, whatever that is. And then on the other hand, um, oh, we've got to protect the religious freedom of bigots to, you know, tell, um, you know, to, to refuse to participate or, or, or serve gay and lesbian people as if people walk around with like a little triangle on their arm anyway, advertising that... Um, you know, we're gay and lesbian. We want some cakes for our wedding. So, hmm. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's really the state with the the whole marriage equality um, debate at this point. Hmm. Um, by next week, we could have um, marriage equality. Um, but of course, it'll be it will be something to celebrate. But it also, we'll have to. I think it will be important to acknowledge that this isn't the perfect bill um, that is going to get through. Um, and I think you know we we have to bring attention to that fact because um, the reality is there's actually still a lot of discriminations that still exist. And, um, for example, um, a lot of religious organisations um, are exempt from the Anti-Discrimination Act. So basically religious schools and churches have the right to discriminate against people on the basis of their sexuality. For example, a good example is there was a school teacher who was sacked um, in WA for being gay by a Catholic school. Um, and it's like, you know, these, this is the so-called result of the religious freedom. Although just to clarify, um, there's no, there's nothing, um, the, the, a lot of the, even if, um, the marriage equality bill, um, got passed with no, none of these called discriminatory amendments, um, 
those thing those things in, would still be in place because none of none of the marriage quality bills um, propose anything that would change the status quo on that question of religious organisations being exempt mm. from the Anti Discrimination Act. Um, but I guess the only the positive thing is if marriage equality was to pass, it would become more normalised in society mm. um, and that would, I think, it's already spreading to a number of the religious organisations and so gradually over time a lot of mainstream religious organisations, in fact, a lot of them already are, um, would become more accepting of, you know, um, homosexuality, etc. Yeah, would- and we had Farida on last week and I really liked the point she made, which was... Okay, it's it's good to be winning this campaign and to get the right to marry. That is significant. But the real significance, actually, of this campaign is the social change that has occurred across Australian society. Mm. And, uh, you know, that queers are so much more accepted and embraced now than was the case five or, or ten years ago. Mm. Okay, um, so I might play a quick announcement and move on to some news um, from Green Left Weekly. Green Left Weekly. All right, you are listening to Green Left Weekly um, Radio. Um, I'll just get to go give you a bit of a, uh, for the next 10 minutes, we can give you a bit of a summary of the different articles that are going to be, uh, that are in Green Left Weekly this week. Mm. Um, so we have like a, quite a long interview with um, Patrick um, Bond, who's uh, basically, com- um, it's quite a long interview on the whole situation of um, the whole Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe um, situation. Um, kind of a bit of a summary as I've I've heard of it is they've basically replaced a terrible person with another terrible person. That's sort of the the summary of it. Then there hasn't really mm. been any sort of g- genuine kind of political um, change. Um, and of course, um, you know the the because um, it says here that he, his replacement, M- Emerson, has been a leading figure in Mugwa's um, regime and is implicated in serious human rights abuses as well as corruption. Um, and so this article and interview goes into sort of all the economic background and the detail of it, and so I think it's definitely worth reading. Mm. And Patrick Bond is a South African um, socialist. Uh, he's obviously, yeah, someone who's... who's in the know about different uh, left-wing and, and political developments across the African continent. Mm. Um, there's also an article here in Cultural Descent about um, Nick Cave on how he's sold out and basically shuns Palestinians by you know break, breaking the, um, the BDSM um, picket line. Um, there's an article here in the interview on why the left should support Catalonia. Um, and, you know, basically how the struggle in Catalonia for self-determination um, has shaken the whole Spanish state and, you know, has forced all the political forces to take a stance. Um, and, of course, there's some articles on here. I think I might want to talk a bit, bit about this, um, actually, in more detail. Um, but basically, this is an article on how the new anti-systematic left has, is like the biggest winner in Chile's elections. Mm. Um, since it writes here, Manuel Gos. Zalis um, writes here, since Chile's return to democracy in 1990, after the fall of the um, Pinochet dictatorship, um, the South American nation has maintained a largely stable and predictable political system. 
Um, however, the stability of this post-Pinochet setup, political setup has seemingly coming to an end, um, and a clear expression of this is the results of the presidential and parliamentary elections held on November the 19th. Um, while front-runner Sebastian Panay, a former president, billionaire and candidate for the centre-right coalition Ramos, came first, he only managed to win 37% of the vote, falling well short of poll predictions that had put his support at 42 to 47%. However, the biggest surprise was the result for Bridges, such as the French Ente Ambul um, candidate, who had won a broad part of the broad front left, or, who won 20% of the vote, defying polls that suggested she would only win about half that. Um, Sanchez narrowly missed out on making it into, onto the second round, coming just two points behind um, Alejandro. Um, a TV personality and candidate for the incumbent um, centre-left coalition. But of course, um, you know, the FA, writing a bit more about here, a uh, new left-wing coalition formed in January, obtained much of support from young people and the social movements. It ran on an anti-systematic platform that pro- proposed profound social reforms and a more active role for the state and economy. Um, its primary goal is to overthrow the neoliberal system um, inherited from the Pinochet dictatorship. And for this purpose, it has proposed a, constitu- a constituent assembly that would allow the people to elect representatives to draft a new constitution. And of course, the rise of FA can be largely explained by two factors. A new generation of voters with intense desire for political change has emerged in Chile as a result of the high school-led Penguin Revolution of 2006 and the university student revolt of 2011. Um, So... You know, they, this um this is all sounding quite positive. Although I did hear for, at a Venezuela conference, I might have misheard this, but I heard that this new anti-systematic left party might not be completely friendly to Venezuela, but I'm not sure. So it might be worth exploring a bit more further. But it does, I think, you know, sound pretty positive, and it does, and the fact that they're building off the kind of previous kind of um, credible events, um, some of the recent events in Chile, like especially a lot of the student movement, which is quite active, um, it's, it's quite it's quite positive, so mm. definitely. Mm. It's peculiar that they're not uh, friendly to Venezuela when it sounds like they're um, putting forward a similar path forward that the Venezuelan left put forward, um, you know, 20 years ago, which was to begin that process of radical change with a constituent assembly with uh, drafting a new constitution. Mm. Um, another article that's in featured on the United States, though I haven't been able to read it in full, um, it's a article on how working class women say me too and um kind of reminds me there was this um actual meme um that i just saw recently that you know basically a woman saying that oh yes um pointing out that you know if you look at how terrible women are treated in you know upper class kind of industries like you know hollywood you know as actresses film producers etc uh or people involved in the television industry you know, imagine you should imagine how women are treated in sort of, you know, hospitality, you know, agriculture, mm. all the kind of working class industries, and that kind of yes. So this um, this whole article really talks about how women, working class women, are kind of like those workers are standing in solidarity and building kind of political struggle and protests around this, mm. and it's uh, involves uh, involves uh, and it's written by. Uh, a socialist um, activist and long-time organiser in the um, anti, 
um, sexual violence movement in the United States. Um, so definitely quite a long article that's probably wor- um, worth reading. And then there's also a, um, a report back on protest, Me Too protests that took um, that took place in Hollywood. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, the next next thing um, is uh, there's also an article about uh, German elections. So uh, German elections happened two months ago. I was actually over there. Uh, visiting um, my my partner's friends and family when the elections happened. And the far right, the AFD neo-Nazi party, they got something like 13% of the vote uh, and a bunch of seats in the Bundestag, the German National Parliament. Uh, It was the first time in, you know, since the actual Nazis that um, there's been, you know, fascists in the German parliament. Uh, There's still no government in Germany Back when the Turnbull government was elected, there was this long process of trying to negotiate a um, coalition or whatever, and, and people were like, oh, no, there's, there's no government in Australia. It's crazy. Uh, well, Germany, it's been two months now, and they still don't have a government because there's, the, there's this kind of really um, free market party, the FDP, uh, they've tried to impose very kind of right-wing uh, market liberalisation sort of reforms if they're going to form coalition with the CDU, the Conservative um, Party of, of Angela Merkel. And the SPD, the German equivalent of the Labour Party, have said they uh, don't want to be part of a grand coalition. They don't want to be like a in coalition with the German equivalent of, like, our Liberal Party. So, yeah, there's no there's no alignment of parties. The Greens are willing to be part of a coalition with the Conservative Party, which is, uh, you know, the Australian Greens don't seem to... don't seem to have learned this lesson from Germany that if you go into coalition with the Liberals, uh, that's going to really impact your support base. Mm. So, and, and the Greens in Germany, they should have learned that lesson, but they're once again looking at forming a coalition with the CDU, uh, the Conservative Party there. But yeah, so that's that's an interesting mm. one. I think one of the factors of that is um, Angela um, Merkel has this very... She has this very respectable kind of centrist image around her. That's what I kind of noticed in the kind of mainstream discourse about her politics, even though she is quite right-wing and there's really nothing really remotely left-wing or progressive about her other than maybe some liberal social values or something and so on. Um, so next article we want to talk about is... Um, um, is um, I just wanted to actually I want to talk actually give a bit of a report back on this forum I actually just went to yes last night so I had the pleasure of seeing Gideon Levi speak um, yeah, cool. at an event organised by the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and um, Jew- the Jewish Democratic Society um, and so yeah he spoke he's a quite a long time Israeli journalist um, who is pro Palestine and has been written and he writes for a newspaper in Israeli I, Israel I think it, I forgot the name of the newspaper um, but it's it's interesting enough it's quite a center left kind of liberal newspaper it's probably equivalent to the Guardian is it Haretz yeah Haretz mm-hmm. um, and interesting enough I have my own 
from what I've read about Jerez, I have my own criticism, but he was generally... Well, it's like The Guardian or yeah. Sydney Morning Herald of the Age. you got a yeah. lot of crap in there yeah. as well. But um, he's generally was putting forward a very strong position on Palestine. In fact, one of the, he sort of speaks from, being, from the personal experience of being Jewish and living in Israel himself mm. and how he went through that process of kind of indoctrination. And he kind of made some really good political points. Some, the, one of them is that, you know, ultimately... I'm sure he makes a good point that, you know, the majority of Israeli people probably do have a conscience. They probably are genuine good people at heart. But when it comes to this whole question, the occupation, and they're completely blind. Mm. And he makes a point that, you know, it used to be that, you know, we'll just accept the occupation as a normal thing. Now we just basically pretend the Israeli government pretends that the occupation doesn't actually exist, which I think is... Um, telling my analysis of that is that you know it's kind of shows the kind of pressure that the um, that the Palestinian Solidarity member has a movement has had on Israel to the point where they actually they kind of acknowledge that occupation exists. They have to pretend it doesn't actually exist to give it any legitimacy. Mm. And then a second point he makes is that the two state solution is untenable. The only that Israel has just taken too much land. Um, the only solution will be a one-state sol- solution, a secular kind of state that unites Palestine and Israel. And kind of like the third point, and this relates to another point, um, he thinks that the while there, it's true that there is progressive um, Israeli organisations, of course they're marginal, incredibly marginalised in Israeli society, he doesn't think that um, it's going to be a matter of you know Israel changing its heart on their apartheid and coming to... Uh, a, a conscience it's going to have to rely on external pressure and the active resistance of Palestine and the people standing in solidarity um, just like how South, the South African apartheid war go, it went through external and international pressure which I think is a really important point to make because you can't mm. just expect um, the, oppre- the oppressor to just change their mind overnight they need mm. external pressure to change the status quo mm. and you can't expect the this uh, highly indoctrinated working class of Israel to, um, I guess, spontaneously lead that shift on their own. No doubt they will be an ally and a part of that process. Yep. But that external pressure is really important too. Mm. Yeah. And okay, then the, this is where I'll end on the last point because we'll get to reach the name of He then wins on um, Rio 8's kind of support for BDS and how he thinks it's really the only game in town um, mm. for this reason because it's the main thing that is putting external pressure on Israel. Um, and, it's all, and it's also one of the best ways that someone. He also talked about how there's these attempts to criminalize BDS and he thinks that it's so. He thinks it's ridiculous because it's sort of like criminalizing. You know how people, you know, how do you, how do you criminalize a boycott? Like, yeah, that's the thing. So you, you're going to force people to buy a certain com- product. He makes this comparison how there are vegans out there that will, won't buy meat because they think it's unethical, and he and he thinks it's almost like it would almost be like criminalizing that, criminalizing being a vegan or being an ethical consumer, like buying products that you know are how, fair trade. How do you even police that? Like, oh. We just looked at your dockets and it looks like you're not buying any meat. 
What's going on there? Well, it's all like you're, we're looking at your dockets. It looks like you're not buying things from the occupied territories. Yeah. You totally must be supporting. But yeah, he talks about those attempts in the Israel state to criminalize age. But anyway, oh. his whole talk was actually good record- luck with that state of Israel. His whole talk was actually recorded in live stream. So if you look at the Australian Democratic Society website and um, uh, or APAN Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, you'll be able to find it. Uh, anyway, um, we're reaching the end of our program now. Uh, yes. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Yeah. Uh, Cheers to uh, Debbie Brennan from CAF and to Peter Boyle for having a chat to us about uh, left-wing politics in Malaysia. Yep. Okay, we'll go play the ending outro. Stick around for Beyond Zero Emission. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first.